Good morning, Journey Church, and Happy New Year. Man, you guys are asleep. Good. Let's try that again. Good morning, Journey Church. That's better. That's better. Cool. I was starting to worry. I was starting to think this might be the hangover crowd. I'm not sure, but, but we all know that second service, right? So, three guesses to what I'm going to say to the second service. So, Thank you all for being here today. Thank you for, uh, for joining us on this holiday. A good crowd uh, for, for New Year's Day. Um, you know, I was just thinking about uh, resolutions. Um, how many of you have made some New Year's resolutions? Raise hands. Gosh, nobody? <laughs> okay, of all the ones that have made them, how many of have already broken one of them? So that's probably, probably me. My wife and I always had this practice. We, don't, we haven't done it much lately because we would, um, like at midnight, we would write down our goals for the next year. And we would, uh, make maybe 10 of them, we'd fold it and put it in the Bible and never look at it, at it again. So, but that's, that's not true. We would always open it up the next year and we would kind of see how we did. And a lot of times it was probably about 50%, which is probably pretty good. If we hadn't done that, we probably wouldn't have done uh, that well. And so we all know about New Year's resolutions. The gyms are going to be full tomorrow. You won't be able to get on a machine. Uh, but just hang, hang in there because about February, it'll be a ghost town again. Uh, that's kind of how it works with, uh, with New Year's resolutions. You know, I was looking at, at what the top three resolutions are, at least in our country. Um, and the top three resolutions are this. Uh, we can all guess the first one, right? Lose weight. Yeah, that's, that's the number one uh, resolution. The second one might be a little surprising. It's to get better organized. And the third is to, is to spend less, save more. And so that's, that's the three top New Year's resolutions that people uh, tend to make. And so those are great resolutions, but um, I've got uh, a couple of suggestions for New Year's resolutions for 2023. Um, the first one of this, the, the biggest one, is let's make 20, 2023 the year that we choose the things of God over the things of the world. That's pretty broad. But uh, how we can be more specific at that is we can all resolve to read our Bibles on a regular basis in 2023. And there are practical ways that we can do that. Uh, we try to help you with that. Um, we have uh, Bible reading plans that are available online. Uh, you can go to our Journey KY website, journeyky.church, and you can... Um, Go to the Move University taglines right there on the landing page, the, the button, Move Y-O-U University. And under, I believe, the Believe uh, Waypoint that we've talked about, there's some resources. There's a lot of resources on there, but there's an annual Bible reading plan. You can go on there, download it as a PDF, and if you follow that by the end of the year, you will have covered the entire Bible. And so it's a real simple resource, please. Uh, check into that. Another one that I like, I like the Daily Audio Bible. And this is an app that you can download to your phone. You can download it on your computer. And you can listen to the Bible on a daily basis. I do that. I've done it for the past two years. I just started this morning. Uh, and you can listen to that. And by the end of the year, you will have covered the entire Bible. Uh, if you don't like the audio version of that. You can actually read the, the, the verses that are read are actually available on that app. And there's also a cool little section there that's a journal where you can actually electronically journal as you read that, as you listen uh, to those uh, Bible reading plans. 
And so whatever it is, I'm sure there's plenty other apps, but why don't we all resolve to make this year the year that we really dive into and really digest God's Word together. Uh, There's also other ways that we can resolve to get closer to Christ in 2023, and that's by joining a journey group, a smaller group of uh, Christians that are just trying to live their lives together. Uh, we have groups that meet on Sunday morning uh, that you can that you can join any, at any time. We have other groups that meet throughout the week on different evenings or different days. And I think we've probably got more than 100, maybe 120 people that do that on a regular basis. And so there's room for all of you. We can get you plugged into one of those night groups. You can join a group on Sunday morning. Uh, but Eric just alluded to something that's new this year. And that we're going to, like he said, we're calling it the journey. And those are opportunities for you to join three separate groups. And, you know, Financial Peace University hits one of those, those main resolutions, you know, to get our house in better financial order. And so the group that I'm going to teach is, uh, is going to be the pathway, just helping us move closer to Jesus and, of course, uh, Eric's grace marriage group. Now, that, the, the, the way we're doing this it's getting rid of one of the biggest obstacles that I think people have uh, for joining a group, and that's childcare. And so while these groups are going on concurrent to that, you're gonna be, the kids will be uh, in the Journey Kids Club learning about Jesus. And so we've kind of taken away that big obstacle. So I'm excited about that. I would really hope that you guys uh, would get involved if you're not currently involved in a group. So again, let's just make this year the year that we all endeavor to take the next step on our journey that brings us closer to Jesus. So today, I get to kick off this new series. Uh, it's about the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that, uh, that Jesus preached. And I've studied this a lot of different times in a lot of different groups, maybe in Sunday school classes. But the coolest place I ever uh, got to review the Sermon on the Mount was on the Mount, of Beatitudes when I traveled to Israel. That was one of the more, I think, emotional moments during that trip was to listen to Jesus's words and, and be at the place where, where he spoke that. So I want to tell you a little bit about that place, tell you about the geography of it. One, it's in Galilee. It's in the region of Galilee. It's on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, which is the second lowest body of water on the earth. And it's second only to the Dead Sea, which is only about 85, 90 miles south of uh, the Sea of Galilee. And so this place, this spot where Jesus uh, spoke, it was overlooking the part of the lake where Jesus more than likely walked on water. And it's in the same area where he performed the majority of his miracles. It's a place called the Evangelical Triangle, the area between Capernaum and Bethsaida, uh, where Peter and Andrew were from, and Chorazin. And so where Jesus performed the majority of all of his miracles. And it's not far from the place where Jesus gave that highest level challenge to his disciples when he said, follow me and I'll teach you to be ministers of men, to be fishers of men. And so it's called a mount. And I think that's a Western translation because it's really not a mountain as we would know it. It's more like a hill. And I've got a photo here, if the guys would put this up. This is the Mount of Beatitudes. The structure you see there is actually called the Church of the Beatitudes. Now, you can't point to one specific spot and say, this is where Jesus stood and taught the Sermon on the Mount, 
But it is pretty much generally conceded that at this hill is where most likely these sermons or sermon happened. It's a neat area. You see some tented areas. There's actually banana plantations there uh, in modern times. And so, you know, we showed our, our, our bumper and our video that shows snow-capped mountains and all that, and that's catchy and gets your, your attention. But this is really what the Mount of Beatitudes looks like. And, and there's some geographic oddities in this area. Uh, to kind of kind of describe that, uh, when we were there, we were staying on the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee, which is just a big lake, basically. And uh, we were walking to the dining hall after a day of, of walking and tours and all of that. And we heard a band playing. And I thought, well, I, I didn't know they had live music at this place. And so we walked onto the dining hall. But when we got there, we were the first ones there. There was no band. There was no one else. And so, but what we realized uh, across the lake, about six miles, is the ancient city of Tiberias. And there was actually a band playing at a location there in Tiberias, and we were hearing it from six miles away as if it was in the next building. And so the sound carries in this area. And so that kind of gives you an idea of how Jesus was able to communicate to thousands of people in one sermon because the the acoustics were perfect. And so it's no wonder why Jesus picked this place uh, to give this important uh, sermon. It's also what cuts through uh, the, the mount or the hill is a road. And it's called the Via Maris, or the Way of the Sea is the interpretation, but it's a Roman road. When we were there, we actually stood on the cobblestones. Them Romans knew how to build roads, because a couple of thousand years later, they're still there. And so we stood on those cobblestones of this Roman road. And that's important because it kind of might tell us a little bit about the crowd. Because the Roman road came from the east and the west, and it converged to the north, and at that confluence was Capernaum was the, the city that Jesus kind of set up as his base of operations. And so it wasn't just a Jewish town. It was a town of pagans. It was a town of, of probably Egyptians and Romans. It was kind of this mixed bag of folks. And so more than likely, that crowd that Jesus was speaking to that's not far from Capernaum uh, was kind of a, a mixed bunch, a lot of different folks, so Jews and pagans alike. And so today, we're going to start off by talking about the first 12 verses in the book of Matthew, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. These are famously called the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes. And so what I found out is most people don't know what that word means. You know, in, in Celebrate Recovery, there are eight core principles that guide the recovery process, and they're based on the Beatitudes of Jesus, And every week, we ask someone to come up and recite these eight core principles along with the Beatitudes. And what I found is people really don't know what that word means, and some can't really pronounce it that well. And so we can, isn't it funny how we can say something for years and not really think about what it really means? And so the Beatitudes, what that means, the Greek word that it's derived from is beati, which means happy or rich. Or what the Bible says in a lot of interpretations, it's blessed. And so Beatitudes is to be blessed, is blessed. So if we're saying that we are being blessed, we're saying that we're being made happy, or we, we're being made rich, we're blessed. And so that's what the word Beatitude means. Some, you might even say it makes us content. I think it might even be a better word. 
So let's go ahead and let's start into these verses. If you want to follow along in Matthew chapter 5, it kind of leads off like this. It says, when he, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And so an important detail in here, it says that Jesus looked over the crowds, then he went up and he sat down, and then it says his disciples came to him and he began to teach, him, teach them. Now, I think that's pretty significant because if you look at the timeline of, of events, I was just talking to Humera about chronology. When you look at the timeline of events, a lot of people believe that just before this Sermon on the Mount, uh, that Jesus uh, had prayed all night, and he had brought down all of his disciples, and from this crowd of disciples, he chose the twelve. He chose the apostles. And so I think that's uh, spelled out more in Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. For one thing, a lot of people believe that the Sermon on the Mount just wasn't a one-time event, that maybe Jesus preached this uh, more than once in different locations, possibly. Uh, but one, one thing I think is true is Jesus carried this message throughout his ministry. These teachings were something he probably just didn't do one time. But, but in the book of Luke, it, it's the, the Beatitudes uh, or the, the Sermon on the Mount, they're called the blessings and the woes. And so we call them the Beatitudes in uh, the book of Matthew. And so what a lot of people believe is that Jesus was teaching the disciples they, he think a lot of people believe uh, that he was actually giving the apostles expectations. And so, but all the crowd was there to hear and to learn as well. And so I think that's a pretty important detail to think about. I don't know if I'm absolutely right about that, but it's, uh, it's an interesting way to look at it. And so let's go, so let's get started into the Beatitudes. The first one is this, the poor in spirit are blessed for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Does it, does it sound like poor in spirit is a positive thing? I mean, I was kind of confused. I've been confused over that for the years. But I think what Jesus was saying, really, was he was saying is that those who admit their spiritual bankruptcy are blessed. That's what Jesus meant when he said he didn't come to cure the righteous. He came to seek and save the lost. You know, in the book of Matthew, uh, actually when Jesus encountered Matthew in chapter 9, it says that he went to the tax collector's booth and he told Matthew to follow him. And Matthew, this tax collector, this sinner, uh, followed Jesus. And they went to Matthew's house. And so apparently Matthew invited a bunch of friends. Now, who are his friends? But other tax collectors and other sinners. And so they were having dinner. Now, that's, that's taboo for Jews in the first century. You're not supposed to hang around with pagans and sinners. And so the Pharisees took note of this and they asked his disciples... Why is your rabbi, why is your teacher eating with sinners and tax collectors? And so Jesus caught on to this, and he told them, he said, it's not the healthy who need a physician, uh, but it's the sick. You know, if there's a constant bad guy in the Gospels, uh, it has to be the Pharisees. It has to be these teachers of the law. You look at Jesus, Jesus forgave the Romans while they were in the process of killing him on the cross. And Jesus showed mercy to the Samaritans that the rest of the Jews called half-breeds. And he touched the lepers, the lepers that were cast out of towns 
that, that weren't even allowed to, to worship in the temple, weren't even allowed to fulfill those requirements, but Jesus showed mercy to them. But he had righteous anger in a lot of, at a lot of times towards the teachers of the law. He said they looked good on the outside. He said they were whitewashed tombs, you know, full of dead bones, is how he uh, described the Pharisees. And something really interesting happened when John the Baptist was jailed. Jesus picked up the very mantle that John the Baptist uh, was preaching when he, when he said this in the book of Mark. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So in other words, Jesus was saying, confess that you're spiritually poor. Repent. Believe in me and receive your blessing." Receive contentment. Be rich. Be blessed. You know, happiness isn't gained through our own righteousness, but it can be gained through knowing the real Jesus. The next one. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. This is a tough one for me sometimes to understand. I'm going to be blessed when I mourn. You know... Jesus' church is meant to be a family. It's meant to be a family with Jesus as the Father, with all of us sons and daughters, all of us brothers and sisters. And a couple of weeks ago, we had a funeral here for someone, for a family member who went home to the Lord. And by all means, it was way too soon for us. Uh, it was something we didn't want to happen at this stage anyway. Uh, and I was out of town, but my wife... The night I talked to her at, after the visitation, she said something amazing happened. That our church family was lined up out the door to pay respects and to, uh, and to, to offer comfort uh, to the ones that were left behind. You, a lot of you were here. A lot of people that don't even go to this church anymore, but still all children of God came uh, to pay the respect. That's what church is supposed to be. Church is supposed to be a family. And for those that are left behind, you know, in some way, they're going to be cared for one way or another by all of us, by the church as they wrap around and by their brothers and sisters. But even so, I find it really hard to look someone who's had a great loss in the eye and say, you're blessed. That's difficult for me. As, as a matter of fact, I, and I've heard a lot of you say this, I just don't know what the right thing to say is. But we all know the same thing, and they know uh, what we know, what we already know, is that with God's children, death isn't the end. Death isn't the end. The only comfort that we can find when a loved one passes who's a believer is this, is that Jesus saved us. Jesus saved us. He died a temporary death, so our death, this physical death that we're all going to face at one time or another, it's going to be the same. It's going to be temporary, and that's called hope. It's hope. God says we can find joy in all circumstances. Even at a time of great loss, we can know peace, and we can know joy. I've suffered a couple of those losses in my life, and, and it hurt and sometimes it still, it still hurts. But, but through the hope that I have of knowing where my father is, knowing where my brother-in-law is right now, that anguish that I feel over time, that frown turns into a smile, and those memories are fond, knowing what the future is. Honestly, 
I don't really understand how the unbeliever makes it through these tough times that we're all going to face sooner or later. The next one is this. The gentle are blessed for they will inherit the earth. You know, when I was in the business world nine years ago, it's hard to believe it's been nine years since I've uh, entered full-time ministry. Almost a decade. Time goes by pretty quick. But when I was in the business world, I probably had the reputation of being kind of a hard nose. Uh, I dealt with a lot of contractors, with a lot of uh, engineers and owners. And, and I felt, and I was actually taught that at times, you, know, you need to, to be kind of tough. That, that it was warranted uh, to be that, that hard nose. What I'd also learned is that really doesn't carry over into the world of ministry that well. It really doesn't work. I learned that, you know, nine years ago. Honestly, looking back at it, I really don't think that it served me a lot of good uh, in the secular world either. I don't think it bore a whole lot of results. My dad told me something when I was a teenager that obviously I've never forgot. He said, son, you can punch a guy in the nose ten times, but you can never make him like it. And that is so true. Uh, it doesn't. What, I think what he was saying is, you might win a battle, but you're not going to win the war by being that hard-nosed, by being the hard case. You're just not going to do it. I think Jesus' life gives us the best example of how to live. Because Jesus, you know, he was so perfect at, his, at, at administering grace and truth. Those are two words that are just something that are so large in my life now, grace and truth. See, Jesus was angry when it was appropriate, and his anger was righteous. And that was fulfilling the prophecies. It was fulfilling, fulfilling uh, the Psalms uh, that said that, that the zeal for my Father's house will consume me. That, that expressed Jesus' uh, zeal for the things of the kingdom. And so that zeal sometimes brought out an emotional response from Jesus, but he was full of grace. He offered grace. Uh, his offer of grace was gentle, and it was open to everyone. Even those Pharisees I was telling you about, Jesus extended grace even to the people that he expressed anger to. So I think we're going to be the happiest if we can follow that example. And I'll tell you, I have experienced that in my life. You know, I've, I know what it's like to be a hard nose. I know that, but I also know what it's like to offer truth and grace. And the latter is where we can find Jesus, truth and grace. The next one, Jesus said, To those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. And so righteousness, I wanted to look that up. I'm always curious about the definitions of words. Webster says that righteousness is acting in accord with divine or moral law, free from guilt or sin. I had a boss that once told me, you know, we can't be perfect, but we're going to strive for perfection. And I think I know what he was saying. He was saying we can't be perfect, but, but if we strive for perfection, we're going to get the best result. And so I hope that we all understand that we can't be perfect either, that we can't be sinless. Being sinless on this side of eternity is impossible. We've all, we all know that. We just can't do it. But I believe we're called to strive for the things of God's kingdom and strive for God's guidance, to seek the things of God's kingdom over the things that the world's got to offer. You know, if I were to stand on the street corner in public and say, Hi, I'm striving to be righteous, 
I don't think it would be taken that well. I think people would say, well, you just think you're better than everybody else. You're holier than thou. I think that's what people would say about it. But, what I, but really what I would be saying is that I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be more like Jesus tomorrow than I am today. That's what striving for righteousness is, is to try to, is to, try to develop those characters that Jesus exemplified in his life. We can't earn God's grace. We know that. And it's not about earning our salvation, but it's about living out God's call on our lives. That's what righteousness is, is about. Next one. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. And so to be merciful is to be compassionate. It's to be compassionate. It's to be prepared to think about someone else ahead of yourself. It's to think about being selfless. It's to care for someone else's needs over your own. And Jesus put it this way. He said, but if you don't forgive people, your Father in heaven will not forgive your wrongdoing. And being merciful is about, being, uh, for, about offering forgiveness. Being merciful is to forgive. And, and if we can't show mercy to others, how can we be shown mercy? This made me think about the, the parable of the unforgiving slave where uh, Jesus tells this account. It's, it's in response to Peter asking, how many times do I need to forgive my brother who's asked for forgiveness? And the answer was infinite. You're supposed to do it over and over again. But Jesus launched into this parable where this master uh, was calling in all of his debts. And so he brought this one slave who, owned, who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a, a hefty sum in those days. That's a lot of coin. And so he brings this guy in and he says, pay up. And this guy falls at his feet, and, he say, and he's asking for mercy. He's asking for patience, and he'll pay him everything back. And so the response of the master is not just to give him compassion and give him time, but to forgive the debt. He told him, you owe me nothing. And so this slave's response was to go out and find a guy that owed him a few denarii, which was just a paltry sum. I guess his thought was in the story was, hey, now that I don't owe him anything, whatever I collect is mine. And so he goes to a slave that owes him this little bit of money, and he gets him around the throat, and he's choking him and telling him to pay him back. And then the slave basically offers the same plea that this guy had offered to the master, saying, please be patient with me, and I'll pay you everything I owe you. But the guy wasn't compassionate. He sent the guy off to jail until he could pay everything that he owed. And so the story says that the other slaves heard this, and saw this happen, and they were pretty upset about it. So they go back to the master, and they tell him what just happened. And so the master has this slave dragged back in front of him, and he drags him across the carpet and can't believe that he's not willing to offer the same mercy. And so he sends him to, to jail to be tortured until he pays back all of the 10,000 talents. And then Jesus ended the parable by saying this. He said, So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Underlined. From his heart. Jesus was pretty clear. We'll be blessed. We'll be happy. We'll be rich if we show mercy. If we forgive. But it's also, we have to do that from our heart. We can't do it. Uh, out of obedience or, or just being compelled to do it is something, you know, if we've been given mercy by God, we should be happy enough to offer that to other people. It should come from our heart. We should really mean it. Folks, holding on to a hurt that someone has placed on you 
just hurts you. It's just punishing yourself. Withholding forgiveness and mercy is just punishing yourself. Jesus said, blessed are those who show mercy. Blessed are those who forgive. The next one. The pure in heart are blessed for they will see God. What does pure mean? It really has defined as pure is, is basically being the, in the absence of other contaminants. You know, gold is considered pure if it doesn't have a lot of other elements mixed in it. And so to be pure in heart uh, would, would mean basically that we don't have other things that crowd out uh, the good stuff. We don't have like greed, envy, uh, or hate that, that kind of mixes into our heart and contaminates it. So being pure of heart... Uh, basically, it's to have a heart that's, that's free from, from selfishness. It's basically being selfless and compassionate. It's, it's having all those other things crowded out by the good things that God uh, gives us with. The next is this. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called the sons of God. You know, I would imagine that at least some of us during these holidays have probably experienced the conflict with another family member. I mean, it always happens. There's always that brother-in-law, you know, that just kind of grates, or the sister-in-law. Somebody, somebody has gotten mad, I'm sure. Uh, that's, that's just how it works. We have those conflicts. We have things like that that happen. This happened to us a couple of years ago at Thanksgiving, and the details aren't really important at all. Uh, but a sibling of, of my wife, uh, after everything was over, he walked back into the house, and he was angry that maybe we had slighted uh, his wife. It was a blow-up. It really was. And so the common way that we always deal with that is we just don't say anything and we hope it goes away. That's kind of how we like to deal with those issues. And so but my wife and I were, were pretty stressed out about it. We go home and we pray about it. And we decided, hey, we're going to reach out to them. And so probably something they weren't expecting. So she reached out to our sister-in-law. I reached out to my brother-in-law. And, and we agreed to meet face-to-face separately. And we just laid it out on the table. And we dealt with it. And I think because of that, because of that response, I think it salvaged a relationship. Actually, I think it salvaged a relationship with the rest of the siblings as well. And I'm going to tell you this. We did not want to do it. It was downright uncomfortable. And it's not something that we really enjoyed or looked forward to. But we made peace at the cost of some temporary discomfort. And I think we received a blessing for that. You know, and I wasn't great about that before, and I'm sure I've failed a lot since. But I think Jesus was telling us the truth, that the blessings come when, we, when we're peacemakers, when we resolve those issues. And then Jesus ended the Beatitudes with these statements. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You know, the idea of being persecuted because of my Christianity was something I didn't really think about a lot as I was growing up. I don't think I really experienced it. But it seems like today we're kind of seeing it a little bit. We're seeing it more and more. You know, you can't watch a sitcom on television without seeing Christianity being mocked. You can't watch a movie without Christians being belittled. It's kind of, we're, we're, we're just kind of saturated by it on Facebook or other social media It's just a common thing for Christianity to be belittled or to be mocked. 
We're, we're worse than that. Sometimes we're being branded as hateful actors who think we don't do any wrong, that think we're better than everybody else. And progressive Christianity seems dead set on reinterpreting the Bible to align with the culture of the day that, that kind of tamps down the truth. So now what's, what's happening right now, I can't say it has, it's reached the, the level of persecution, especially biblical persecution. I mean, nobody's being beheaded or hung upside down on a cross. Uh, that's not happened, uh, at least not yet. But in some parts of the country, uh, people are being sanctioned by the government for holding to their political beliefs. And you know what? Jesus promised this was going to happen. And so sometimes I'm amazed that we're so surprised about it. Jesus said, they're going to hate you for following me. Jesus said that we're going to be insulted, we're going to be punished, and we're going to be accused of everything under the sun when we decide to follow him. He says it's going to happen because it happened to the prophets of old, and we see that in the Bible. As crazy as it sounds, Jesus said we're going to be blessed, we're going to be rich, we're going to be happy to go through it. We see that in the Bible as well. We see the apostles who all were persecuted, all but one, died a martyr's death. But they did so willingly, and they did so with joy in their hearts. We're going to be blessed because of our suffering for his sake, as crazy as that might seem. We're going to be happy to suffer when it happens. We're going to be blessed when we're belittled. And, you know, I love the, 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 uh, the prayer that we pray at CR. There's two, the way it ends in these two lines. We're, it, it, I, think it's gonna, I think it's pretty accurate. I love these lines. And, and it kind of goes along with being persecuted. As we may be mocked or belittled or whatever, it says we're going to be reasonably happy in this, in this life if we follow Jesus. But we're going to be supremely happy in the next with him. I love those lines. Reasonable happiness is as good as it's going to get on this side of eternity, but it's going to be bliss with Jesus in heaven. So be glad. Be glad when you're being mocked. You know, I'll close with this. I started out talking about New Year's resolutions, about reading the Bible, about, about being a part of a group. But I've had a really big conviction over the past year about my prayer life. Sometimes I think as a minister, uh, you know, we can't, I can't lead you where, in places I'm not willing to go. And so when my prayer life is suffering, I, I can't equip you or help you at all. And so I've been really convicted to develop a better prayer life. This discussion with the real Jesus, knowing Jesus, you know, how can we move closer to him if we never talk to him? And so I want to I wanna share in that. I want to join in this resolution with you guys as well, is to have a more meaningful and deep prayer life with the living God this year. And so I'm going to close the way I do and whenever I speak, I'm going to close with the word of prayer. The, the, the worship team's going to come back out, and they're going to, they're going to sing one more song. But during that time when we're, when we're worshiping together, as an act of worship, I want to invite you to come forward for prayer. You know, I always give an opportunity. If you don't know Jesus, if you've never accepted him as your Lord and Savior, man, I'd love to talk to you about that. What a great way to start the new year. But also, if you need someone to pray for you, we're going to have uh, folks up here. Would love to do that. Heck, I would love it if you would come and pray for me. But also, this space is going to be open for you to come up and just deal with God. Just deal with Him on a personal level. 
in prayer as an act of worship. And so we've got some kneelers. If you'd like to use those, you can just stand up here. Uh, I really want to, I, I just want to say whatever might be holding you back, please just let go of that. Come forward. So bow with me in a word of prayer, and then let's go into this last song. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. How lost we would be if we didn't have that. We thank you for these, these beatitudes, these blessings, these, this richness that we can experience by following you, by knowing you, the true Jesus. God, I pray a blessing on each and every one as we enter this brand new year. I pray for everyone who's here, everyone who's watching. And I pray if there's anything that's holding them back from taking the next step on their journey, that you would release that right now. Whatever's holding them back from coming forward, you would just remove that obstacle. God, we love you. We dedicate this year to you as a family. And it's in your son's name that we offer our prayers. Amen.